There are some doctrinal subjects that are so foundational to our understanding that getting them right or wrong will have far-reaching implications. How we live and whether we're even able to understand something could be affected by these subjects. Take, for example, the doctrine of man. Is man basically good and wants to seek to do what's right before God and man? Or is man dead in sin? Is man able to change his desires? And so forth. That has far-reaching implications how we view man. Today we want to work through this passage and, and primarily focus on who Jesus is, which is another teaching that is so foundational in the same way. So as we look at this text, we have to be thinking, well, what comes before it? What comes after it? What is what is Mark communicating here? Uh, before this text, we have the famous passage of Christ rebuking the wind and telling the sea to silence. And this is on the way to Jesus' encounter with the demoniac. And we see the, the effect that this has on the disciples in Mark 4.41. And they feared greatly, and they said to one another, Who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? After our passage today in Mark 5.1-20, through 20, we see miracles for two different women, two different females. Uh, one was a woman who had a bleeding issue for 12 years. Another was a 12-year-old girl he raised to life. And after all of these accounts, it's no wonder that the people are shocked by both his wisdom and his mighty miracles that are being performed through him. He's Lord over the created order. He's Lord over the demonic order. He's Lord over health. He's Lord over life, and he's Lord over death. This man is astonishing, and he is amazing to us. A supernatural and a powerful Jesus Christ is essential to our faith. But as we see in our passage, not everyone takes him seriously. Not everyone wants him around. Not everyone believes what he says. So far in this book, in Mark, in terms of demonic activity, we see in Chapter 1, 23 through 24, Jesus cast out an unclean man, uh, uh, sorry, an unclean spirit from a man in their synagogue in Capernaum. A little later in that chapter, we read, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill of various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak, because they knew him. One observation we could take from that is, the people knew the people who were demon-possessed. This wasn't some mystery to them. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus gives the twelve authority to cast out demons. And later in chapter 3, we have that famous account where Jesus is said to be possessed by Beelzebul. And he himself, he's accused of having an unclean spirit in verse 30. So the charges laid against Christ um, which were obviously not accurate, but we see that they even accused him of this. And it continues later in this book as well. We have a famous exorcism in, in Mark chapter 9. So it's quite—it's actually quite prominent in Mark's gospel. And we see Jesus as the one who has overcome the powers of darkness in delivering people from demons. But today I want to focus on the person of Jesus in this text. Lord willing, next week we'll look at some further applications. Let's walk through the story. 
in verse 1, we read that they come to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gadarenes, or the Gerasenes, depending on which translation you're using. There are so many explanations about the location. If you look at the parallel passages as well, you see um, some differences. There's so many explanations to the years. We could probably spend five or ten minutes alone just talking about uh, the location, which I don't intend to do. Uh, but it's interesting, the earliest accounting for this apparent discrepancy is as early as the third century. So this is a very old discussion. People have been dealing with this for many, many centuries. And one of the ways that this is worked through is if we meet someone around here and they ask, where do we go to church? We'll probably say Beaver, maybe Brighton. If we meet somebody a few states away in Illinois, where do we live? We're not going to say Beaver or Brighton. We're going to say near Pittsburgh. So perhaps something like that is going on here. There's a better known area and a, a lesser known area. Uh, another thing that's brought up by some is there a translate, transliteration issue here. So when we're taking a word from one language to another, we have to take the letters and change it to the letters of whatever language we're, we're trying to communicate in. So was the sound more like a G sound in Greek, but in English it's more like a K sound. And um, Anyway, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time here this week. And then we come to the description of this man. He's terrifying. He lives in the tombs. Verse 3, his dwelling is in the tombs. He is incredibly strong. Verses 3 and 4, no man can bind him with chains because they had frequently bound him with fetters and chains. And the chains were torn apart by him and the fetters smashed. And no one could tame him. He's also crying out at all hours of the night and day. And he's harming himself with stones. We read in verse 5, all day and all night in the mountains and in the tombs, he's crying out and he's beating or cutting himself with stones. This is a scary man. We also know that he is unclean. He lives among the dead. He has an unclean spirit. We remember back to Numbers. In Numbers 19, he's unclean just for touching a tomb. Not only is he touching them, he's living inside of them. This is his home. There's a Jewish tradition behind this practice of sleeping in a cemetery in order to gain an unclean spirit. It's written in Jewish tradition. With regard to one who sleeps in the cemetery... One could say that he is doing so in order that an impure spirit should settle upon him. Although it is inappropriate to do this, as there is reason for this behavior, it is not a sign of madness. So whether this man was driven here, or he came here with that intention, this text doesn't explain, but we do see that there's this connection in, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, we also... I have to wonder, was this man attempting to become a necromancer before his possession? Definition of that would be the art of revealing future events by means of a pretended communication with the dead. And in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 27, these folks are to be put to death. But we could say for certain there was unfaithfulness in this man. There was rebellion against the Lord. He's also not the only strong demon-possessed man we encounter when we read the scriptures. In Acts 19, the sons of Sceva and their botched exorcism, they're left upon, stripped, and they're wounded. One other text I want to consider 
um, is in Isaiah 65, 2-5. Isaiah 65, 2-5. Alright, Isaiah 65, 2-5. I've stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. Who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day see connection, there's swine, somebody dwelling in the tombs, or spending the night in the tombs. So next we come to the confrontation with the demon. And this confrontation is, is kind of confusing. The number is switching. Or is, is he talking to a singular person, multiple demons? It's, it's switching between singular and plural. What's going on inside this man? We could see that there's a great number of demons within this man. Even the order... Uh, if we look at verse 8, there's this word for to begin the that verse. So first in conversation, Jesus commands a demon singular to come out of the man. But Mark kept this in a, a certain order, so we're going to go in that order. Um, the first thing we don't come to, the first thing we come to is not the conversation, but the bodily response of this demoniac. And we see even in verse 2, the meeting was the first event when Jesus got out of the boat. They get to their destination. This is the next thing that happens. In verse 6, this man sees Jesus from afar. He runs and he falls prostrate before him. Your translation might say worshipped here. Uh, that's not necessary to think of it in, in a worshipful sense. In fact, Mark is later going to use that word in, in chapter 15, verse 19. The soldiers are striking Jesus. They're mocking him. And this word's used there when they get on their knees. And then in verse 7, we have this, what to me and to you. It's an idiom found in both the Old and New Testaments. It's, it's an expression that Jesus is, that Jesus uses toward his mother, um, at the marriage celebration. At the wedding, Mary told Jesus they were out of wine. Jesus replies in John 2, 4, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Same expression used there for what does your concern have to do with me. Uh, in the Old Testament, when the widow is speaking to Elijah after her son dies, before Elijah raises him back to life, she uses this expression. First Kings 17:18. What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? But what have I to do with you? Same, same expression used here. And it's interesting, if you look at both of these verses and compare translation to translation, there's a lot of different ways to try to get this communicated appropriately. The context is going to help us to understand. So here, what do we have in common? Why are you troubling me? Why are you visiting me? Why have you come to me? What do I have to do with you? That's the, that's the sense here. And in verse 7, we have this confession of who Jesus is. He's the Son of the Most High God. The title is accurate. The demons recognize that Yahweh is supreme. It's evident here. And then further in, in verse 7, he adjures or implores by God. There's this earnest charge not to torment 
the, the demon here, and again, it's singular at this point, the demon's making his utmost plea for a further stay on his inevitable torment. Verse 8, again, Jesus would have already called the demon to, to come out of this man. There's not any sense here that the demon's able to resist Christ's command. But the demons know where they're heading, and they plead with Christ to grant their request. In verse 9, Jesus asked his name. The reply is, Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion had about 6,000 men, so a great number is meant here. And the demons ask, and Jesus grants the wish that they enter the nearby herd of swine. After the demons are ca- cast out, the unclean spirits, they enter unclean animals, and there's a senseless flight of 2,000 pig or swine into the sea, and they all drown. So the herdsmen that, that are tending to the swine, they flee. They announce what happened in the city and in the rural areas. We read that in verse 14. They're announcing the whole herd of swine have died. They all ran over a cliff and drowned. All is lost. We couldn't stop them. And with such a report, we get the response that we'd expect. People come out to see what happened. And when they arrive, verse 15, they see the man sitting, he's clothed, and he's of sound mind. He's no longer crying out and harming himself with stones. He's under control now. He's dressed. In verse 16, they now get a more thorough account by the eyewitnesses of both the former demoniac and also of the animals. And then we end this passage with various responses to what had happened. So today I want to look at major themes from this passage, look at it as a whole, and we're looking at Christ today. We're looking at the authority of Christ, and we're also looking at the mercy of Christ. As we consider these, we must keep in mind the importance of knowing Jesus as he is. It's important that we are scripturally rooted in our understanding of Christ. It keeps us from falling into error in our thinking and also in our conduct. Jesus, Think about this, for example. Jesus reveals himself as a friend. He also reveals himself as the supreme judge. We must take 100% except both of these things. That's who our Savior is. He's both. So let's strive to glean from this passage a deeper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, the authority of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's undeniably a part of the gospel. The Lordship of Jesus Christ undergirds the true understanding of how the universe operates. He's the supreme authority. He's the head of every ruler and authority. In this account with the demons, Jesus is plundering the strong man. Jesus is robbing from Satan. Jesus' incarnation is summed up in 1 John 3 as to undo the works of the devil. And what a magnificent account we have here of Christ rescuing a man from hopelessness and extreme bondage under the powers of darkness. The demons controlled this man and were totally destroying him. It's a classic picture of a savage. Not only is he out of control, he's actually demon-possessed, and not just a little bit, there's a whole multitude of demons within this man. How is Christ's rulership shown here? Consider this man in relationship to other men. There's no taming him. They can't bind him with chains and fetters as he just breaks them. He's a terror to society. People can see him from a distance, but he's both crazy and strong. Now Christ comes to the shore, and we get a response right away from this man. 
Is he yelling at him? Is he violent? Is he challenging Christ physically or intellectually? No, he knows exactly where his place is. Jesus calls for the demon to leave. This man's prostrate. The demons are begging Christ to delay their inevitable torment. The demons acknowledge Jesus is the son of the one true God. Jesus asks questions and he gets answers. The demons are the ones on the ropes. They are greatly urging and requesting him that they may enter the swine. In all this, we get a clear picture. Who is in control? It is Jesus. He is more powerful than the demonic realms. Jesus' dominion is above that of the powers of darkness. And we see the superiority and victory often in the epistles as well. Other men did their utmost the same to tame and to subdue this terrible man. Yet with Christ, there is no contest. There is never any sense that there is some contest here that Jesus might not win. Christ is more powerful than the greatest will of man. We see Christ's authority and his reign over his followers. He's Lord over the demons. And he's also Lord over his followers. This man, he wants to be with Jesus. While Jesus is getting in the boat, this man requests to be with him. And this man's desire is not a bad thing. But the Lord has a different idea. Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. The normal response for a true disciple we see, it's obedience. Jesus is the master. His people follow his commands. There's another way we see Jesus' reign in this passage. And it's that it's proclaimed into the world. He's Lord over the demons, he's Lord over his followers, and he reigns by by use of weak means. His kingdom spreads through through the proclamation and the presentation of his message to the world in the hands of men and women. In this case, a man who is formerly overtaken by a multitude of demons is used by God. Take me this morning. I'm terrified to teach on this subject. I, I, this is the God-man himself. Think of all the commands in the New Testament. Do something as Christ did something. It's so essential that we understand who he is, what he's done. Who Jesus is explains who God is. And yet, he was fully man and tempted in every way as we are. It's not a light thing to speak of him, especially as a man who sins, who struggles with circumstances. God uses men to teach his message. What a display of his power. Not men with impressive sin records. Not necessarily men with impressive IQs. Even so, he uses men. He is God and he's chosen to get his glorious message of who he is and who we are and what he's done using people, people with weaknesses, People with misunderstandings. People with humiliating sin records. And this is the God who made the universe. If God's not involved here, it's certain to fail. Yet we see his power, his authority, his reign in using preaching. In addition to the authority of Christ we see here, we also see the mercy of Christ. In the context of Mark, we see clearly that he's highlighting Jesus' power. If we just consider what did we read before, what comes before this passage, this passage, what comes after this passage. But also if we look at what Mark had recorded of what Jesus said in verse 19, we consider that Jesus said, 
to him, Go into your house and yours and announce to them as much as the Lord has done and how he had mercy on you. Clearly mercy is a major theme in this passage. You see Christ's pity for this man. But we have to step back and think for a little bit. What does mercy really mean? I was told grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That's how it was first explained to me. And I fully embraced this definition. 100%. And it made some scriptures really confusing. Because <laughs> it almost implies that mercy is injustice. As if justice and mercy are on opposite ends of the spectrum for, for doing wrong. Uh, and I'm not implying there, there's definitely tension here at times. With mercy and justice. But mercy is not synonymous with injustice. Um, they're not opposites such that we want to be somewhere in the middle of mercy and justice. And certainly we would not ever want to say God lies between mercy and justice. Um, and this isn't a new problem. Seventy years ago, this kind of way of looking at mercy was, it was packaged a little differently. But a very well-known preacher of the last century uh, dealt with this. Almost the exact same misunderstanding. Uh, because mercy has to include some sense of pity or some sense of sympathy for somebody's misery. It's coupled with action. Think about mercy ministries. They're not injustice ministries. They're alleviating human suffering. One writer even called mercy active compassion. And a quick note in the internet age, Feeling bad for people that you read about online may have a lot more to do with your human inc inclinations and your personality than whether or not you're acting in a, a Christian manner. We, should, we shouldn't think of just pity as synonymous with mercy either. Pity without action is pity, not mercy. So we see this man, the, the man possessed with a great multitude of demons. He's certainly miserable. He's a drain on society. They're wasting tax dollars in this region trying to subdue him. There's some degree, certainly, to which he's done it to himself. The demons are in control now, but somehow he opened himself up to this. And this is how I, and I'm sure some of you, would be tempted to think about this man. He's getting you know, what he deserves. But thank God he's not like us. Let's think further about this. He's not working. Jeff mentioned earlier the blessing of work. We see improvement of things when we work. The idea we're providing a service, we're building something, we're bringing order to chaos, we're training or teaching somebody, fixing something, improving something. All the various things we do when we work, he gets none of it. Work is a part of who we are as humans and he's not doing it. Not only is he not helping himself in society with his labors, he's actually harming himself physically. He's not enjoying the pleasures of life. God gives us good things. And he's so overtaken by demons that his whole world is darkness. Think as a parent. You have kids. You have desires that they would do right. You have desires that they'd achieve a certain measure of success and usefulness. And this man's a total failure in that regard. Yet Jesus acts in a way that's in contrast to my and I'm certain, I'm certain some of our tendencies here. 
I'm tempted to say they got what they deserved, you reap what you sow, and to forget that I too was headed for a life dominated by Satan. Sure, my sin was different. It would never have led to such a low place in society here. In fact, maybe it could have led to a higher place in society. But all the momentary pleasures of sin I would have uh, lived in would not would not overcome my general miserable condition. We were children of Satan. We were under Satan's reign, and we loved it. But we were also pitiful and miserable when we considered God and the fallenness of humanity. We also consider his mercy for the people in Decapolis. So in verse 20, um, this man is preaching in Decapolis the things that Jesus had done, and people are marveling. The group had rejected Jesus, we see at the end of this passage. These people had rejected him. They want him to leave. The account only shows acceptance by one person who lived on that side of the lake. But we also see God's great mercy here as well. Jesus is rejected by their by the group, and he's their only true hope. But he does not leave them without opportunity to find peace and hope and salvation. For one, he's going to come back to Decapolis. We read in Mark's Gospel in, in 7.31, chapter 7, verse 31. But more immediately, he leaves a messenger. Just as we see God's great mercy to this man, we also see his great mercy to these people. And this is all over the Bible. Think about God with the nation of Israel. In Judges, it's unfaithfulness after unfaithfulness on the part of the people. How many good kings do we read about in the Old Testament? God is sending judge after judge to redeem them and prophet after prophet to point them back to him. Wisdom is crying aloud in their nation to turn back to the living God. Here, the man, Jesus, who can make a demon-possessed man, a man who with supernatural strength is crazy, he makes him sitting and thinking and acting normally. And they fear and re- they fear him and they reject him. They want him gone. Yet Jesus commissions this man to tell of his great power and of his mercy. How glorious it is to think upon the Lord and to consider that not- nothing can stop him, but also to consider that the Almighty is also merciful. It's a glorious and it's a wonderful combination. Consider our world today. Here in Beaver County, there are several places of worship striving to teach the Word of God faithfully and mature disciples of Christ. There are many Christians in this county. I don't mean anything like a majority, but there are a multitude of witnesses that God has left here. America may be largely gospel ignorant, perhaps we might even say gospel hardened, but either way, God is merciful, and his people are still reaching out to neighbors to share about the mighty and merciful Jesus. Has not God shown great mercy to this nation in this way? Yes, there's many churches, there's whole denominations that have become embarrassed by the word of God, but he's left many preachers and many Christians will testify in the workplaces and in the schools, in the public squares and in the confines of homes. And there are many who carry the message not only as of what he's done for us as individuals, 
but also of his great mercy towards sinners in providing a ransom in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we consider these things, uh, look at some application. And I want to be really careful here with application. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. They're, it's far-reaching into every area of our life. The better we understand God, the better we understand everything else. It's foundational knowledge for everything. So I want to encourage you personally to meditate on this revelation of our Savior, on his authority and also on his mercy and on both. But just a little bit. Christ's authority, it allows us to rest in the fact that his reign and his kingdom are ultimately supreme. Whether we see that with our eyes or in feelings at the moment or not, he, um, he, his reign and kingdom are ultimately supreme. We can rest assured that he has all power. All power over nature, all power over Satan and demons, all power over sickness, all power over life, all power over hell, and all power over death. It allows us to think clearly when trouble arises for following Christ. As we know that his dominion is overall, a man not ought to never intimidate others into transgressing against God's rule and God's law. We have comfort that he will make all things right. He will avenge. And at the end of the day, he is the only one we should all ultimately be fixated on least. There's certainly more here, um, but I pray that the Lord would would it to us. There's, there's, again, it's so far-reaching. This wonderful truth that Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe. And for Christ's mercy, we wonder and we worship for the great things that Jesus has done for this man, for others, and for you. The perfect standard for how we ought to look at others, in this case, one who is passionately opposing all that is decent and sane. We see Jesus, what he's done for this man. How do we view these Again, there's there's so many applications that we can make, and I'm really worried that to diminish these great truths um, by giving a, a really long list of how do we respond that Jesus is both Lord and Jesus is, is merciful. It's just so important that we get an accurate picture of Christ and the Father so that we could think, we can act, we could pray, we can encourage others, and we can live rightly. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage in Scripture. We thank you for the revelation of Christ as who he is, our Savior. Lord, I do pray that we might fully believe these things, that we might apply them, that we might uh, stand upon them in our lives and our thinking, and that we might be made more like our Savior as you promised to make your followers. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.